Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 279, the Halloween edition, being recorded on Thursday, October 28th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you, too, Scott. Are you a big Halloween guy? I kind of imagine you are. I am. I like to dress up, but once my kids became teenagers, uh, that was suddenly not cool. So I haven't been dressing up since probably for probably like the last eight years. So if you dress up for your son, uh, enjoy it while you can. Come over and spend it with us. Uh, Steven is happy to be your, your dress up beard. Oh, yeah. He would uh, have a Darth Sidious uh, outfit uh, and... Uh, wore it to the Channel Visor Christmas party and scared all the little kids. Yeah, <laughs> so, so I, I don't do that with five and under crowd anymore. Yeah, yeah, you probably weren't invited back to your own company's Halloween party. Uh, yeah, well, a lot of times the wives didn't know who I was, so it was all right. Yeah, but the other way to think about it is that it's Christmas in October, both because retailers are desperately trying to pull holiday sales in, but also because Apple finally released the new uh, MacBook Pros that you and I have been waiting for. Yeah, yeah, we had some uh, giddy conversations about that. We've got the new chips, and yeah, and you know the Apple the the Apple launch events have gotten kind of weirder and weirder with COVID. Like now, it's like you know Tim standing in a Tim Cook standing in a giant cornfield. Yeah, <laughs> then the the camera flies around like a crow, and so 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 those have been kind of fun to watch, uh, just for the theatrics that they're going through. Yeah, yeah, no, the production, like, despite the fact that it's all pre-recorded and stuff, and uh, you know, the the production value is pretty high. I, I'd like to see him go the other way. It should be like Tim Cook in his PJs in his kitchen being like, oh, and we invented a new chip. I miss Johnny Ive saying aluminum. Yes. That's my favorite. Yes, uh, and as you may know, aluminum is dramatically more expensive than aluminum. Yeah, and chamfered edges. Yeah, yeah, all that's gone now. Now it's just a... A, a chunk of of aluminium um yeah. but i'm excited to get mine i have a little jealousy because i feel like we both er- ordered early on launch day and i think yours already shipped is that true yeah it's somewhere on a plane from shanghai right now i hope according to uh the the tracking number we'll see nice nice i i will be excited for your unboxing um and i half expected that when you jumped on the the conference call to to record this one that you'd be wearing like a Versace like jogging suit or something because my my Google alerts have blown up this week because Get Spiffy is on fire. Yeah, yeah, we had a big week at Spiffy. We announced uh, our Series B uh, fundraising, so that was a lot of fun. I I, uh, I think I had a record LinkedIn post. I think I had something like three hundred comments, and you know, uh, so that was that was good. It's always you know, so it's been a kind of a crazy 18 months uh, for us. And I can definitely commiserate with our retail folks that are going through harder times. Now we had those kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, but got through and uh, it's been crazy. We've since March, uh, our business has grown like 80%. So it's been like this crazy post COVID perfect storm for, for mobile car care. There's a, you know, no one can hire anybody, but but we've been able to kind of squeak that out. And then no one can get new vehicles, so they're running their vehicle, vehicles longer. They don't have anyone to take them to brick-and-mortar service centers. Um, they don't have mechanics to hire, so they call us. So that's been um, – it's been a lot more fun than this time last year. 
That that is awesome. Uh, I I'm gonna assume the one slight negative is you get some good news like that. You get all those those uh, 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 post cooking on LinkedIn, and I'm assuming every vendor under the planet has like read your news and is now pitching you for something. Yes, yeah, I, I try to forward them all to you because uh, there's a lot of executive coaching uh, out there available um, <laughs> that you know maybe you could use uh, a lot of video stories, a lot of AI chatbots. Uh, I you know I don't know how on earth we have the world can sustain at least a thousand AI chatbots, but there are a lot of those out there. Yeah, yeah. One one trick is someone told me. Um, if you put an emoji in your name on LinkedIn, the bots pick it up or get confused by it. Um, so that that helps give me an automatic filter. So if someone kind of uses that emoji when they're kind of like, "Hey, Scott," uh, and that you know they, they put the emoji, then you know that it, it's a bot. So then I just delete it. Oh my god! This episode of the podcast is now like officially worth it just for that. That's a pro tip. Life hacks. Yeah, I'm here for it. LinkedIn life hacks. It's my it's my speciality. That and saying aluminium. Uh, those are all good skills. Uh, but congratulations. I know it's non-trivial ever to get people to have their uh, trust in you and, and uh, uh, invest. And then in this climate in particular, I'm, I'm sure uh, it was uh, a rigorous process. Thanks. Thanks. And we, uh, we actually added uh, the folks at Goodyear Ventures. So shout out to them. I think some of their e-commerce folks listen to the show. So uh, appreciate their support. Nice. A wise choice in podcasts as well. Absolutely. So any e-commerce stuff you follow this week? Well, it has been probably one of the more interesting weeks uh, in the land of e-commerce for a while. Uh, so listeners will remember that, uh, you know, that we, we're recording this in, in October. So this is always an interesting time to, to read what's going on in, in the Q3 results, which kind of sets us up for Q4. So so we always pay particular attention during this time of year. But if listeners remember, uh, back in March of this year, you and I, I would like to say, and I think if we voted on this, it would be unanimous, uh, we're basically clairvoyant, Nostradamus level of predicting things. Uh, you and I both kind of felt like the industry wasn't taking this IDFA, the Apple privacy changes coming to both iOS, what is it, 14.5, and then later 15 added some more. Um you know, it didn't seem like anyone was taking that as seriously as you and I kind of felt like it was going to hit. So we did a really big deep dive on that. That's one of our more popular episodes. That's 257. And um, then in 277, you and I, again, being the clairvoyant uh, wonders that we are, we started talking about the supply chain being way worse than folks thought it were and coined supply pain. Um, so we are now starting to see those two things collide in really interesting ways that, that I don't, you know, that, that, you know, I think our, our guesses that those would be bigger than people thought kind of came true. So let's walk through what that looked like. The first one was uh, Snapchat. So they, we don't usually cover them on the show, but, but, uh, I think it kind of sets the tone here. They started off the earning seasons last week, Thursday on the 21st, and they just totally whiffed on their expectations. And I thought I would read this little segment from from one of the Wall Street uh, analysts. While Snap was clear that the changes have not impacted the efficacy of their advertising, iOS 14.5 is limiting direct response advertisers' ability to measure and optimize campaigns on Snapchat, leading to reduced spending on the platform. Specifically, the update was pushed to users in July, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it restricts the advertisers' ability to use their measurement tools. So. 
So basically, you used to be able to measure what was going on on Snapchat, and you know, and because it's in an app, uh, and that's largely the use cases inside of the app for advertisers, they have no idea um, if that traffic is converting or not. Uh, so that's not good, especially. You know, and then uh, advertisers are in two buckets. You know this, but just for listeners, there's brand advertisers where you're just kind of you know, top of the funnel, building awareness, um, and just really trying to be seen and and and, and whatnot. Uh, and then there's more direct response where you're really trying to measure. You know, I'm selling um, in Snapchat Maps. I'm a convenience store, and I want people to come in and get a slice of pizza. And I'm, I'm measuring that conversion. Um, that just went away. So, so that big segment of advertisers is very upset. Um, and what Apple did is they offered this alternative. Um, I don't know the right way to say this, but it's their own ad network. How do you, how do you say it? Um, Gad network. <laughs> yeah. Ska ad network. I don't know. I'm going to call it Apple's ad network, but that's not the official name. Um, so Apple said, okay, don't worry, everyone. We're going to do this privacy thing over here, but we're going to give you these little tool sets so that your advertisers can see what's going on. Well, those things really stink worse than anyone I think ever imagined because, um, you know, they, because they're super anonymized, you have to have, you have to be at this really big scale. So if you're kind of a micro, let's say you're not 7-Eleven, you're Joe's convenience store. Well, in, in, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, well, you're never going to have enough data in there to give you anything. So, so it doesn't work for this vast segment of advertisers. I think everyone was surprised by that. Um, and then if it does work, uh, the reporting is delayed as much as 72 hours. So it's like what happened last Thursday kind of thing. <laughs> um, so it's just a total train wreck. And, um, and then on top of that, to kind of you know uh, pile on, Snap said, in addition, a bunch of their brand advertisers turned off because uh, they just don't have any products they, they can sell because of the supply chain problems. So so it was a double whammy for Snap, and um, the stock plumbled, plummeted like you know ten percent the first day, and has continued to slide. Um, and so it's down twenty percent as of now. So that was that got everyone really squirrely and spooked out. Um, what was your take on the Snapchat side? Yeah, no, uh, I mean you. I think you you covered it really well. Like in general, there there has been a trend like where more ad dollars are shifting to more of those direct response ads. So the fact that like that's the the side of the advertising that got diminished was like extra severe because, you know, pe- people were generally trying to spend more money at the bottom of the funnel than uh, than they had in the past. These uh, digital uh, platforms and especially after Google and Facebook, they the bulk of their advertisers are the long tail advertisers. So they tend to be smaller people that are more impacted by these sort of like cohort models that that Apple and Google are, are, are trying to use. Um, and I would just say, like, there is a funny thing here, like the attribution always sucked. Um, and at best, it's this last click attribution, someone saw your ad, clicked on it, and then bought the thing. Um, and, uh, and so therefore, your ad was worthwhile. Uh, you never will know if you would have sold the thing without that ad, right? Um, and they may very well have like typed your name into a platform that then showed your ad right above your organic listing, and um, <laughs> you know the the ad kind of stole the click, right? So, mm-hmm. so you know there always is this dirty little secret that like attribution is not the same as incrementality, um, and you know now 
like the, these advertisers that used to be able to justify their spend are having a harder time because of these numbers. But the other thing it's mucking up is about 73% of all these digital ads are programmatically bought. So a, a, a computer program buys it. And guess what the most important import, inputs are for that programmatic algorithm? It's those those ad success metrics. So the, the, the fact that it's delayed 72 hours, it's not just an inconvenience that, you know, someone buying an ad isn't going to see a report for a couple of days. It, it means you can't do this real-time bidding based on, like, you know, hitting particular ROAS goals and things like that with your ads. So it it is a mess. I would just say, you know, Snap and Facebook, you know, used to be a huge competitive advantage that the bulk of their user base was in this mobile app. And, and you know, the, the fact that everything happened in the app was a huge benefit. And now it's it's unfortunately for them sort of biting them in the in the butt. Yeah. Um, so so. You know, that got Wall Street uh, very much awake about this issue. And many of the reports were like, we just don't know how bad Q4 is going to be because, you know, iOS 15 is now out and it it increasingly has turned the crank on privacy. This one is really more around the efficacy of email marketing. But if you're if you're a brand, you, you have, you know, and you used to do a ton of direct response advertising in Snap and, you know, you're, you're doing a bunch of email marketing, you've just had two legs of the stool kind of taken out from underneath you. So um, this got Wall Street very worried. A lot of the stocks kind of reacted. Um, and then that was kind of the setup into this week. So then we hit Monday of this week and Facebook was next up and everyone was like losing their minds because if you think about Snapchat is largely used through the app on phones. The same is similarly true. Facebook at least has some desktop traffic. I believe Snap doesn't have any. It's just an app. Yep. But yeah, it's got to be just an app. Uh, so everyone's like, okay, this is going to be bad, but how bad? Um, so Facebook came out and they missed their consensus numbers, um, but they were in range with what they had kind of guided to. So whereas Snap kind of, I think, just totally blew up everything. Um, uh, and, and then they also kind of lowered going into the fourth quarter. Um, and so so there was kind of a little bit of collective sigh of relief that was like, whew, that wasn't as bad as we thought it would be. Um, and then they kind of said – Oh yeah, and also we're we're gonna change our name. Uh, so everyone's like, "What?" Uh, okay, uh, but then they did they they didn't change their name at that particular time. So that was kind of weird. Um, so everyone's kind of like, "What? What is this?" And you know they they're obsessed with this idea of the metaverse. We should probably do a deep dive on this at some point. But this this idea that you know uh, you'll kind of be able to go in and out of the seamless three D world either with augmented reality or virtual reality and. and uh, you know, Jason, I love to talk about those future things, but don't have time to get into it here. Um, so, so everyone was like, okay, that wasn't so bad. And then on Wednesday, both eBay and Google announced, uh, Google surprised to the upside. And, you know, I, I believe this is because they are, they own a phone platform, they own a browser. So in this new world of, of third party data, um, kind of going away, they're in a, pretty good position because they have a lot of first party data. Um, now they do have some exposure, you know, especially through like their ad networks and stuff, but they were able to mitigate that through the bulk of their other activities. So, um, so that was interesting. And then reading that report, you know, one thing they actually called out was that they, uh, one of the segments that was stronger than anticipated was they, they kind of called it e-commerce and that encapsulates the traditional Google shopping that most merchants, and, and brand folks will know, but then they, they talked about how they're ha- they're starting to see a fair amount of uh, success on YouTube. Um, and it wasn't 
clear to me. I was going to ask you. It wasn't clear to me what exactly they were talking about there. They didn't. They didn't elaborate. You know, is it live streaming? Is it some product? I, I think you can send a feed into YouTube now and and have things bought through there. So um, I wanted to pick your brain on that Google yeah. aspect. Did yeah. You, no, did it is getting a lot of that? traction, and it, it's a there's a a family of ad products on YouTube called uh, YouTube Shoppable Ads, and it. Uh, it's less about live streaming. There's a tiny, a little bit of it on YouTube that's live streaming, but it's it's being able to embed clickable links in video streams and then add pre-rolls for other people's video streams um, that let you endemically buy a product. And so um, the and the you know the the amount of volume on those kind of ad products versus like a product listing ad on on Google search is lower. Um, but the efficacy is much higher and the, the growth rate is, is much higher. So people are consuming a ton of minutes of, of video on the YouTube platforms. And, you know, now we're starting to see tangible, uh, examples of being able to convert that, those audiences into buyers. Um, so that's, hmm. that's kind of interesting, but it's, it's less live streaming and more, um, sort of uh you know embedded uh links in the video that that either do an endemic checkout on youtube or send you to a, a retailer's e-commerce site yeah um yeah I, I definitely want to dig into that maybe we could do a deep dive on another show and, and kind of look at some of the use cases i think it's interesting totally so then everyone was like holy cow this is uh this is awesome google did great uh, and then ebay announced and their their results were kind of what i would call punk they were just kind of like meh you know they they weren't terrible like snapchat and, and one of the interesting things is snapchat set the bar so low that people missing consensus kind of was like almost like a hooray it was a really weird setup i've never seen anything quite like it um so so it's kind of an interesting result there um so so you know being being not terrible is kind of the new win uh, oddly enough so their GMV was down 12% year over year because of these tough comps. Um, and you have a picture maybe we can that you talk about where, you know, you see this mountain last year of due to the pandemic, and now everyone's comping against that mountain. And a lot of folks, uh, especially pure play, anyone pure play retail, um, they're not able to comp against that. They're coming down, you know, the, their growth is slowed below to kind of where that mountain of growth was last year. And eBay's fallen into that trap. Um, they did spend a lot of time on the call, and I, I thought this was – uh, 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 clairvoyant of you, they kept talking about comping against 2019. So kind of a two year ago comp um, because that takes the pandemic out and makes you look better when you take that big mountain of a year outlast and in, in kind of in the sandwich of, of the 2019 and the 2021. Um, and when you do that, they were up 9%. So they felt like that was kind of a win. I, I don't know about that. Yeah. If you do a, a word cloud of all the, the earnings calls this quarter, uh, two years ago will be the biggest phrase on the word cloud. Yeah. Interesting. So then today was interesting because the setup was, uh, and I don't think this has ever lined up like this. So in the morning we had Shopify and then in the evening we had Amazon. Um, and when you, when you, when you're a public company, you have, you can't, you can't announce your earnings while the market's open. Most people historically have done, um, you know, after market close, uh, Shopify, for some reason, they like the morning, um, Part of it is I think you don't compete with analysts for their time because sometimes these internet analysts, you know, like on that night uh, we had Google and eBay, um, they'll go to the, you know, what'll happen is they'll see the press release and they'll have to decide which one of the calls they're going to go to. 
Um, and they'll, you know, let's say they all go to Google. Well, now you're the eBay folks and you're like, does anyone have a question? And it's crickets and there's no Wall Street analyst <laughs> kind of there because they're, they're all over on the, you're, you're competing for their attention. So, so, um, yeah, so, so, so it creates this interesting setup in that like around eight o'clock, uh, before the market opened, 8 a.m. Eastern, Shopify announced. Um, and this one was really super squirrely. So, Shopify has been priced for perfection for a very long time. If you look at the you know the various uh, ways of measuring, um, you know their their valuation against revenue, multiples of revenue, or EBITDA, or any of that, and you look at a chart, they're always way up in the upper right hand corner, just way off the charts and how Wall Street has valued them. Um, so you know, so they actually came in below expectations pretty considerably on the top and bottom line. But again, because of that weird Snapchat, uh, Snapchat setup, uh, it was viewed as a victory, which was kind of really strange because I would have guessed that because Shopify has been so priced for perfection, they were kind of set for like a 10 to 20% correction. And then, you know, they would get back on track. But no, they were like up 8% by, by missing uh, num- their numbers. So it was like super strange reaction. I, I don't 100% understand. Um, so... So I think what it indicates is that folks, you know, Wall Street was like really worried about it because, you know, again, they don't have a ton of their 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 merchants uh, largely are advertising. You know, they could be like a set of these these Snapchat advertisers or they're on Facebook and those guys had headwinds and it just felt like it would be natural for them to face it. So uh, just put some numbers on it. Their revenue grew 46 percent year over year and Wall Street expectation was 54 percent. I think this may be part of it too, right? Because this this miss is still pretty pretty good compared to some of the other numbers we just went through, right? So a forty six percent grower missing fifty four percent expectations during these tough comps is is uh, you know it's not hard to shed a tear on that one. Um, now they did they did kind of dance around IDFA and supply chain, and and for the first time that I'm aware of, they declined to put out a consensus like an estimate for next year, and they kind of talked about a framework. Um, so I think, and and you know, the other trick is if you think about it, they're doing that call today, which is the 28th, right? So and they're they're digital business, so they should have they have a kind of a read on the quarter. So so I kind of felt like. The body language was maybe that they're they're not the setup into Q4 is maybe gotten a little bit worse than than Q3, but I, I may be reading too much into that. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Um, and then they did talk about uh, the supply pain, uh, and then finally, you know, one of the big investment areas they called out for holiday is this Shopify fulfillment network, which I thought was interesting because I keep getting conflicting information on this where. You know, I've had people tell me they've got one thing in Canada and one in the U.S. and they're tiny and they're not investing in it. But then on the call, they're talking about how they're really investing in it. So I don't, I don't know what to make of that. Any yeah. takeaways from Shopify on your side? Yeah, well, a few. Um, so uh, first of all, I, I have a personal theory that um, Shopify is going to be more impacted by supply pain than some of the other big players we're talking about, right? And that's because um, they they don't they're not a retailer. They don't have any fulfillment. They don't sell anything to consumers. They're just an aggregation of a ton of small businesses. Um, and there's none of those small businesses individually have any leverage or resources to hedge their supply chain problems. Whereas Amazon and Walmart have a lot of levers and can buy ships and move to different ports and do all kinds of different things to mitigate the supply pain risks. And so I, uh, 
I do think uh, because they're predominantly small businesses that they're going to take a bigger hit from uh, the supply chain disruptions than is uh, Amazon. So point number one, uh, the I looked at their GMV um, numbers and, and I have to say, like, in general, I'm a fan of Shopify. I think they solve a real problem. They do it really well. I think they have a ton of growth opportunity. I think they've got a bunch of um, smart profitable uh accelerator businesses that they've you know kind of added to the the core platform and the one i like the most is shop pay um and you know their own payment technology is now driving 50 percent of their whole gmv so they've done a terrific job of launching this this payment technology and getting incremental revenue from that and that's you know that's much more valuable than the 30 bucks a month or 200 bucks a month they get for hosting uh, because as those the small businesses grow, they get to grow with them and all, all sorts of good things. So that's my precursor. Um, I hate it when people compare their GMV to Amazon and other retailers because it just it's not apples to apples. Um, Shopify's GMV mostly grows because they add a hundred thousand more small businesses that are each selling a hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff, right? And so it's 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 not like Shopify hasn't attracted any customers. Shopify hasn't sold anything. It It's kind of like if you said, well, FedEx's GMV is bigger than Amazon's or NCR's GMV, which is the cash register in Walmart and Best Buy and Starbucks is much bigger than Amazon. Like it is, but who cares, right? Like they like NCR didn't create any of that traffic. So uh, let me just say like there are all these numbers where they're they're. Uh, cumulative GMV is getting very significant. It's over 400 billion. Uh, their GMV for last quarter was 41 billion. So that puts them at like a, what is that? 160 billion uh, run rate, which, you know, is, is starting to get there. It's like the, the fourth or fifth largest e-commerce site. Um, and I like, I, I think that's a, a false narrative that always uh, annoys me a little bit. Wow. They had uh, they're on CNBC and they have this stat they like to do where it took them eight years to get to a hundred billion and then a year to get to the next hundred billion or something like that. Yeah. So I, I one the number, but. one side note uh, that the thing that always drives me nuts about their GMV is they don't give you any breakdown about churn, right? So you don't know like is that because all the the their original customers are thriving and growing and making their GMV much bigger or did they lose all of those customers because they went out of business, but they got twice as many new customers? We really haven't known in their investor presentation this time. They did have a cohort graphic hmm. that kind of and it didn't have any numbers on it. And, you know, so it's it's kind of hard to interpret. But like it it implied that their old cohorts are a disproportionate amount of their revenue and that their churn is less than I personally suspected. So I actually. uh We'll reach out offline to uh, to Professor Dan McCarthy and see if he uh, wants to accept the challenge of trying to to reverse into some uh, some churn numbers from those graphics that they provided. Yeah, the the trick they do in the software as a service world is they'll take a section of customers, a cohort, like you know Q one twenty nineteen customers, and then they'll look at the revenue from that cohort. Well, you could lose like eighty percent of them, but the twenty percent survivors, if they go up. You know, if they have sizable GMV growth, their revenue swamps the unit lost of eighty percent. That yeah. 
I, my guess is that's what they're doing. Yeah. And it's I, still I have a for everyone listening. Uh, it still is wildly long tail. Like they, in this investor presentation, they have a list of like the, their, their big enterprise logos. And it's, it's Jim shark, which is, a uh, you know, probably one of the bigger digitally native vertical brands, but you know, not, not a billion dollar retailer and it's staples of Canada. Right. And like staples is a good brand. Canada is smaller than California. <laughs> so like it's, you know, it's, it's not like they're, they're, you know, taking these, these huge enterprise sites yet, but that being well, said, on CNBC, they talked about how they just won Spanx and that didn't really resonate with me. I just can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's like a side, you know, maybe it's like an international side or something. Yeah. Now, and I do think they have a ton of, I mean, they have a ton of growth in, in North America, but the international growth I feel like is, you know, huge for them. And then all these payment things and, and, uh, you know, they partnered with, with a firm. Uh, so they have buy now, pay later in their payment ecosystem. And remember, like you can now use their payment system for transactions that are not on Shopify. So it's a endemic payment option on Facebook now. And so it's, it's interesting, like in, in the long run, they could get out of the web hosting business and just, you know, be a a bigger, more profitable PayPal. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, sidebar, there is a lot of uh, rumors that PayPal is going to buy Pinterest and largely driven by this IDFA where everyone's trying to, if you're at the bottom of the direct marketing world um, funnel, uh, all those people because of IDFA, an unintended consequence I didn't catch up to would, is they're all trying to walk up the, the to the, the first party data, which would be by acquiring Pinterest. So uh, very interesting, you know, yeah, I, I would don't say know how we much were early. Put in this, but they came out strongly and and alleged that that wasn't true. Yeah, well, but, it's interesting yeah. to think through. Like, oh yeah, you know, I, I do think that a lot of firms are thinking about this because the IDFA is actually causing maybe even bigger ripples than than I. Yeah. Than I in, in my expect. world, the way that plays out is uh, everybody is like so focused on the retail media networks, right? So selling ads on their retail properties where they do have first party data. And it's a it's a very good practice. Everyone should be doing it. But like the amount of attention it's getting right now, like how hot it is in the market, like is way bigger than the 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 possible upside. And so you get like every uh uh you know, Clarina is a buy now pay later service. Like they have an ad network, right? Like just mm-hmm. like just for the the you know, like if you use the Clarina app to to like maintain your installment love, <laughs> there there's like ads in there that they're they're selling to to advertisers and uh a personal favorite is the gap um and the the reason that's funny is like most of these ad networks are selling to their in what they call endemic advertisers right so if procter and gamble is selling uh gillette razors at walmart then walmart will get procter and gamble to buy a gillette razor ad on on walmart.com it makes perfect sense um guess what there is not at the gap any endemic advertisers (laughs) Yeah. It's all Gap product, right? So they they've got a like they're going to get Kanye to buy an ad, I guess. But um, uh, you know they they've got to sell to non endemic advertisers, which is a a much higher bar. So it's it just funny how like it, there's a huge rush to first party data right now. Yeah, you get an ad work, ad network. You get an ad network. It's exactly network, giving out ad networks. Okay, so that brings us up to this evening when Amazon released. Um, so it feels like everyone had kind of you know, breathed a sigh of relief and everyone's like, Oh, Amazon's going to crush it. 
Um, and then Amazon. And if you remember last quarter, Amazon kind of had a bit of a, a mellow kind of slight miss quarter. Um, and, you know, the stock, if you look at these, these kind of, uh, there's all these different names for it, like Fang and all this stuff, but these kind of mega tech stocks, um, you know, a lot of them have been moving pretty aggressively. So Microsoft, uh, Facebook, uh, Apple, et cetera, uh, especially Tesla. Uh, and then Amazon's been lagging the pack and usually they're the leader of the pack. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people were expecting kind of a beat in, a, in Amazon to really kind of take off because it's been under pressure. That didn't happen. So they actually uh, missed expectations. Um, the revenues came in at $110.8 billion, which was uh, below the $115.5 billion. So 15% year-over-year growth, which is you know a very un-Amazonian kind of a result. Um, now, it's better than eBay's minus 12%. And, and, you know, but then again, Shopify, and I know it doesn't count exactly because they're adding same-store sales, but you could argue, I guess, so is you know, Amazon's adding third parties in here too. Um, you know, so it, it, it was, it was a bit slower than people thought um, in Q2, they grew 24%. So another big step down. A lot of this is their mountain last year, really because they focus on so many essential items in Q2, they really didn't get a bump until Q3, Q4. So they're, they're comping, their comp is actually harder than maybe like an omni channel or even an eBay um, just because of the focus of, you know, selling masks and, and what they called kind of emergency essentials last year. Um, they peel the onion and they have this one segment called online stores. Uh, and that was only up 3% uh, for the third quarter. Um, and that was a deceleration from 13% in Q2. Uh, and then this rippled to the bottom line where operating income came in at 4.9 billion, which was well below the 5.5 billion consensus. Um so, so that that's the bad news, and there was some good news. Do you want to cover some of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and side note: is there a new thing called like, um, like you know, there are always these like beat and raise, like you know, vernacular for like you know, you beat the consensus and then you 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 raised your guidance. I feel like mm-hmm. there's a new thing. It's um, uh, miss and grow, where like you miss all your consensus numbers, but your stock still goes up. Yeah, yeah. That Shopify totally nailed that one. It was kind of very strange, but yeah, they did it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, some of the interesting, uh, things in the, in the Amazon number, uh, I like to break down those segments. Uh, you, you hit the, you know, the big segments online retail, and it obviously, uh, had a pretty slow rate of growth by Amazon standards. Um, but, uh, an interesting subset of that is physical stores, right? So Amazon's got like eight different retail formats. The bulk of them is 500 whole food stores. And historically, Amazon's physical stores is the one segment that shrinks every quarter, right? So going back to Q2 of 2020, physical stores went down 30, 13% and then 10% in Q3 and then 7% in Q4 and then 16% of, in Q1 of this year. Um, and we're just, we just got used to seeing that number go down. And we all thought it was going down for two reasons. Number one, Whole Foods was kind of a distressed asset when they bought it and they they haven't really improved it in any meaningful way. Some people would say they've they've diminished it and so like it probably is shrinking and it's the bulk of their their retail sales. But then uh what Amazon has done for Whole Foods is is help them sell groceries online and then of course the pandemic helped them sell a lot of groceries online. Um but ironically Amazon doesn't count those whole food online orders as whole food sales. They're not physical sales that that 
those dollars get uh, attributed to Amazon online and not to Whole Foods brick and mortar. Um, so if there's a big shift in mix from shopping in store to ordering for home delivery from Whole Foods, that actually hurts physical retail sales. So for all those reasons, we're used to seeing that number go down. Um, last quarter, it bounced up 10%. And then this quarter, it bounced up 12%. So I have to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. Part of it is e-commerce had such a big growth last year that um, comparatively, re- uh, the the rate of retail growth has kind of accelerated. Brick and mortar growth has accelerated a little bit. And the, the rate of e-commerce growth, while still higher than brick and mortar, has decelerated. So that kind of mix, um, you know, maybe is favorable for the way Amazon does accounting for these stores. Maybe some of the other store concepts are starting to get more traction like the Amazon Fresh stores, perhaps. I don't know. But um, uh, it's it's interesting to see that number uh, going north for the first time in recent memory. Um, of course, everyone always talks about uh, AWS being the profitable segment. Um, so they sold $16 billion of AWS, which was 39% growth, which was an acceleration in growth. So again, that's been kind of growing at 30% a quarter. And now, you know, last quarter it grew 37 and 39 this quarter. Um, that makes a lot of sense. The pandemic drove a lot more people to the cloud and online. So, you know, uh, it, it's uh, AWS is firing up. Um, and then uh, going back to the ads, I talked about how big a deal retail ad networks are. Well, by far the biggest retail ad network is Amazon. And they... Uh, uh, somewhat derogatorily to me, like call their the retail ad network other sales in the in their segments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was their biggest quarter ever. They sold eight billion dollars worth of ads for the quarter, which is forty nine percent growth, which is actually a, a significant deceleration. Q two grew at eighty three percent, right? So this number is growing really fast. But the way to think of this is if you add up the last four quarters of their ad sales, they sold $30 billion worth of ads. If you add up the last four quarters of AWS, they sold $57 billion worth of of server services. But think about the cost for that $57 billion worth of server services. They have a bunch of silicone. They make their own chips. They pay a ton of electricity and they pay rent and people and all this stuff in order to deliver that AWS, right? So- there's a lot of cost for to get that fifty-seven billion dollars worth of sales. the 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 cost of those ads is near zero, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, it's very low. And so, thirty billion dollars in ad sales, I guarantee you, is more profitable than fifty-seven billion dollars in in uh, uh, server capacity sales. And so, like it, it's it's. I said this last quarter, but it's even more clear now that the most profitable business at Amazon is now. Um, this this ad network, and in their their uh, their investor call, um, they, uh, Andy sort of addressed that, and he talked about the fact that like, hey, we don't really think internally of breaking out retail sales versus ads versus marketplace because they are inextricably linked. They all need each other, um, and you know, together they're a super powerful flywheel. But like. You know, they they basically recognize that, like, yeah, you know, we could break even or lose money selling goods when we're making a fortune on the thirty billion dollars of ads that we get to sell because of those goods, right? And and all the the seller services for the marketplace half of their their sales. So, like, you know, 
the the myth that that re, the retail part of Amazon's business is not profitable or less profitable than things like AWS, like I think is 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 getting even more exposed. And again, all those 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 businesses, AWS and ads, are are uh, growing quite healthily at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Colin Sebastian, uh, who is a um, good friend of the show and has been on many times, he pointed out for the the one of the interesting parts of this quarter is for the first time, if you think about Amazon having two pieces of product business and a service business. So a services would be AWS ads, this thing they call merchant services, which is kind of FBA and and some of the marketplace revenue goes in there. Amazon pay. Um, and subscriptions. Um, that is now for the first time, the revenue from those pieces, the quote unquote services pieces is bigger than product revenues for the first time ever. Um, and you see it in these numbers, right? So online stores decelerated, uh, a couple other things decelerated, but but AWS and ads ex- accelerated. So you, you know, it's really interesting time where that 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 kind of uh, tipping point happened inside of there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then two other takeaways from the earnings call that I thought were jewels. They got asked because uh, you you talked about um, advertisers on some of these other platforms like Snap slowing down because of supply pain, right? If I don't have products in stock, I probably shouldn't be advertising those products. Um, so they got asked, like, is other going to take it in the shorts in Q4 because advertisers are going to cut back because of supply pain? Um, and Amazon's answer was no, that they're not seeing people cutting back on on ads from supply pain. They said, like, what is likely going to um, hurt our comps in ad sales for Q4 of this year is that Prime Day was in Q4 of last year and that there's a lot of ad activity that's driven by Prime Day. So they said, like, you know, look, our comps for uh, ads in Q4 may be um, not as strong as they ordinarily would be, but it's going to be because of the the shifting dates of Prime Day, not because uh, advertisers are, are slowing down, which is interesting. And again, Amazon's attracting um the long tail and uh the the head advertisers whereas like snap is mostly getting long tail advertisers so um i found that really interesting um and then amazon also said like look supply chain is going to be really challenging and as a result we are incurring a lot of incremental costs but they were very strong that it wasn't going to hurt their revenue number that it was going to hurt profitability but they felt like they had enough levers to pull and pulled all those levers to ensure that they both were going to have enough inventory and that they were going to have enough fulfillment capacity to deliver on that. So they they were super confident there. And what they called out, they said the the um, impairment that's going to be the most hard for them to overcome this quarter is not inventory. It's not um, uh, logistics. It's labor. Right. And that's the one that they felt like it was the hardest for them to overcome is they've got huge turnover. They're trying to hire a bunch of people uh, and the cost to hire them are just, you know, skyrocketing because there's, you know, a, a constrained pool of people willing to work and and they're able to command a lot more uh, for their their labor right now. Yeah, Jesse basically said that they're getting back in. He, he basically said, I want to remind everybody, this is a second quarter of CEO that when we have to choose short-term profit over long-term customer experience, we will lose money for, for, you know, we will invest in long-term customer experience. Wall Street took that as like, oh, we're entering into one of these investment phases. Usually they get kind of excited by it because it usually ratchets the, the orbit Amazon's in up and the profit kind of spills over after about 18 months or so. 
but there really wasn't a lot of enthusiasm this time. So, so that was interesting. Um, and then, you know, I, I mentioned the, the operating profit was about 4 billion. Their forecast for fourth quarter, they actually, they did, you know, unlike most companies right now that are just like, we have no idea what the heck's going to happen. We're not going to put out a fourth quarter forecast. Amazon did. And they basically said the bottom line, it could be between zero and 2 billion. Well, that was like, you know, you know, again, that that's a very strong signal. They're going to be spending a lot of money in the billions. Um, and in fact, they added a color and said, we see several billion dollars of additional costs related to, and they, they put them in this order, labor shortages, higher wages, uh, global supply chain issues, et cetera. But then they said they still need to hire 250,000 people for holiday and they're going to do whatever it takes because they won't be able to deliver and, and execute unless they have them. So yeah, uh, that, you know, Pretty, he, he used an interesting metaphor. He said, like, um, that, you know, they just decided it wouldn't be customer centric or in their long term interest to raise prices or fees. And so he's like, we we really think of ourselves as a shock absorber and we are going to take the hit on all of these incremental costs for both our customers and our marketplace sellers um, because we think in the long term that's going to strengthen the flywheel. So, I mean, he was pretty like, there, you know, there was not a lot of subtlety about the fact that like, yeah, it's, you know, it's going to uh, there's going to be a lot of incremental costs to win this holiday, but that they're going to win the top line and not worry so much about the bottom line. Yeah. Um, what else did you get from the Amazon call? Uh, those those were the big things. One other thing that's interesting to me is um that, you know, everybody's struggling to figure out digital grocery right now and solve the unit economics. But there's this n- other tidal wave behind that that we'll call ultra fast delivery. And we've talked about a little bit on the show, but there are all these firms, GoPuff most notably, but Joker and Gorilla and all these firms like coming out with these 30 minute or 15 minute delivery promises for a constrained uh, set of products. And one of the analysts asked Amazon, like, uh, you you've always done really well against the your traditional retail competitors in terms of of logistics, but are you worried at all about these guys that are being like purpose built for like a a speed that's faster than your usual service level? And uh, it got a pretty arrogant answer, I would say. <laughs> He's like, uh, "We really like our model. We have 178,000 uh, SKUs right now that are available for two hour or faster delivery, and that's a lot more." Um, skews to a lot more consumers than any of those companies. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was, um, you know, uh, like I think yeah. obviously that is a space Amazon's going to watch closely and play in. But the what's almost happening is they're they're just ratcheting up the service level for so many products. And like when I, you know, Chicago's a advanced market for Amazon, but when I put stuff in my cart now, I get two options for same day delivery. Are you getting that like morning and then like yeah, there's like, like an insane one that's like 4 a.m. to 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. Yeah. And it yeah. works. Like I wake up and there's stuff like at my front door. Um, wow. Like pretty, you know, I wouldn't say perfectly, but pretty reliably. And so, again, like, you know, uh, if I order before noon, there I have two windows often to pick products. And I'm not having to go to some separate experience and shop from some constrained set of products or things like that. Like I think the the universal experience and universal cart and the move away from Amazon Prime now and all these separate experiences. Like I I do think in a way, like Amazon is solving for ultra fast delivery, but they're just one generation more mature than any of these, you know, uh new companies. Yeah. Um okay. Anything else there? 
that is it on Amazon. Did you have any other takeaways? There's one other IPO that I thought was interesting this week. Well, then it was really weird because after the market closed, we're all digesting that. And then uh, Facebook's like, hey, everybody, uh, we're changing our name to Meta. And then they put out this logo that looks like a warped eight on its side or like the infinity symbol that's been bent. And you just look at it and you're like, I bet they spent $800,000 on that logo. And, and you know, there's it's, it's not any amount of money spent on branding and logo generation is well invested. Okay. Yes. Hashtag true. Tag publicis. Yes, absolutely. Call Jason if you need a new logo. Did you guys do that logo for him? Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that we did. Oh, and I, I love it. Not because Sorry, I'm being love it. not because I'm being stealthy. I just honestly don't know. It's totally possible okay. that we did, uh, <laughs> but, but I don't know. Uh, but we certainly do a lot of great branding work, including the Amazon logo. So fun fact: the chief uh, the chief branding digital logo officer doesn't know what logos you're doing. No, no, but the way more talented people at Turner Duckworth would would probably be able to tell us. Okay, cool. What IPO did you see? Yeah, uh, so have you been following the Rent the Runway IPO at all? I have, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is pretty interesting. So digitally native company, um, unlike a lot of the other digital native brands that's kind of um, in the the re-commerce space, right? Because they're they're buying apparel and, and renting it to consumers, um, and they have been one of the the most hyped digitally native brands because in general, rental models can be like extra profitable. You buy something once and you you rent it a bunch of times. An old mentor of mine, Wayne Heisinger, used to do that with videos and he made a lot of money in that space um, and trash cans and other things. Um, so uh, it, it was interesting to both see their financials and then they actually had their IPO this week. Uh, so, and it's a very, I'll call it a bifurcated story. Um, so it's an 11 year old company. They've raised over $700 million in venture capital and they're wildly unprofitable coming into this IPO. Um, so they, they lost $154 million in 2020. They're forecasting to lose $171 million in 2021. Um, and of course they're in like the worst possible business case for COVID, right? Like they're, they're renting apparel to women to wear to parties and to work. And two things no one did in 2020 is go to a party or go to work. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, they, historically they would have like hung their hat on having all the subscriber revenue and their subscribers basically got cut in half by COVID. They lost 42% of their active subscribers. The revenue dropped from a high in 2019 of 257 million to 158 million in 2020. So COVID really hit them. Um, and, you know, you go, man, that it feels like they're kind of limping into the IPO. Um, and I, I want to talk about how that IPO went for them. But two other interesting facts before we talk about that. One thing I thought was really interesting and, and arguably like the one favorable thing in all of their financials is how they get the inventory that they're renting. So uh, a catastrophic piece of news is that their inventory is way more fragile than I would have expected, right? So they they rent, you know, one of those garments six times and then they usually have to retire it. So they're not getting like tons of reuse about, around each of these garments. But 36% of their rental inventory is rev share with designers, so what that means is instead of buying it at the wholesale price and then them renting it a bunch of times, 
they're getting it free or at a very low cost from the the design house, and then they're sharing the profits with um, those those uh, those brands. And that's frankly exactly how the video rental business grew. Like in the early days of Blockbuster, we bought videos and rented them. And later on, you know, we did rev share agreements with all the, the, the movie studios and that like lets you get a lot more inventory, a lot more affordable. Um, also surprising to me, 18% of their inventory is private label, which I would have thought like a big part of the value prop of Rent the Runway was all these well-known designer brands. So I was surprised to hear they're able to get away with, you know, almost one out of four, five garments being, being private label. So that was interesting. And then the last piece of catastrophic news is as bad as their finances look, um, the accountants looked at it and threw up even more because um, I mentioned that this inventory gets really perishable and, and they have to throw it away. Well, the, what they, they, they did all their finances without including any depreciation of their inventory. So they invented a new flavor of EBITDA it's called like EBITDA before inventory depreciation. And, you know, those, uh, if, if you were to actually put the depreciation on their books, the, those losses I just read to you would be even much higher. So, so, uh, mostly like a pretty negative look at the company, um, going into this IPO. And then I want to say they, they did the IPO at, uh, at 21 and immediately the stock went up and they, they, they uh, uh, hit a high of 23 and everyone's like, wow, in spite of all this horrible finances um, they're, they're having a big IPO. Um, And then as the day went on uh, the price started dropping down. um, And now I want to say it's about 18, uh, 18 bucks and 85 cents. So, um, you know, pretty significantly down from that $23 offer. Um, like Scott, in your mind is like let's let's call it ten percent. Like, is that a, a an acceptable IPO? Is that a disaster? Does it surprise you given their finances uh, that they were able to do an IPO at all? Yeah, and you know one of the ways I look at it is let, let's look at the valuation. So they're doing one hundred and fifty eight million ish um, last year, um, and we don't have enough data this year to kind of know. But they're they haven't really materially improved since then. So let's say let's be generous and say they'll do two hundred million this year. Um, they're at a billion market cap, so five x for a business that you know has all the the kind of the negatives you you outlined there. Um, you know the they're not getting as much use of the garment as you would think. Um, I think uh, you know our our friend Dan McCarthy is it McCart McCartney McCarthy. or McCarthy McCarthy yeah he uh you know he 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 kind of picked apart their cohort data and it looks like they have pretty high churn. Um, you know, I actually think it was kind of a win because that's a pretty good valuation for, for this snapshot shot in time. Um, pricing IPOs is tricky because you want to kind of price it where you get a little bit of a pop, like maybe 10 to 20% up. Um, but if you get more than at the company, you're kind of sitting there saying, we just sold a bunch of stock at a discount and that wasn't great. Now, the good news is you're, you're hopefully, you know, you you haven't sold the majority of your stock, so you've sold maybe ten percent, and now you have like ninety percent that's worth more. So it's, it's it you're not going to cry over it. <laughs> cushions the blow. Yeah, going down isn't isn't a good look, um, and it does indicate that you know a, a fair amount of weakness as people 
you know, maybe they got excited and they're kind of like, oh, I think I'm going to, I'm going to kind of limit my, you know, maybe they sold half of it. You, you also, in the IPO, you're trying to place the stock with people that will hold it long-term. So the fact it's down means that that didn't really work, that people were just trying to flip it for a quick buck. Yeah. Yeah. One other side note, like a lot of people were optimistic for this IPO because this like re-commerce model, like it's, you know, potentially better for the environment. And uh, looking at the the economics, it actually ends up that this is probably worse than like buying disposable apparel from H&M <laughs> because like the the reverse logistics of moving this stuff around so many times and then like having to throw it away pretty quickly and like, you know, leaning into the fashion trends and stuff becoming obsolete as new trends emerge. Like it all it all netted out to like it, it wasn't a, a very favorable ecological story either. Yeah, well, we'll you know, a for effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my big takeaway again, like, there's there's going to be some interesting digitally native companies, but like this this myth that that is fundamentally an advantage model and that all these companies are doing great. Like, this is one of the companies. A lot of before there was any public data available, everyone's like, oh, I think they're at a billion dollars, and they've got all this sticky reoccurring rental uh, subscription revenue, so they're probably wildly popular, and and their costs are super low because they're renting the same garment over and over again. So, like, this is an amazing business. And then you know when you get to look under the covers, like, no, it's not. So you know, I just I would just say. Uh, you you can absolutely build a good digitally native business, but like it's not a good business just because you're a digitally native vertical brand. Yeah, one uh, for listeners, as you know, one of my favorite hobbies is I, I really love to watch the roadshow presentations, but they're only out there for like a week or so. Uh, Allbirds is on the road right now, so that one is available, and uh, you have to go to retailroadshow.com and pick it from this list and, and watch it. Uh, it was one of the better ones I've seen in a long time. The video they did, the you know, with the founders, it had like a cheekiness to it that was yep. kind of unusual. Sorry, you know, usually you're talking things, about the Allbirds one, right? Because Rent yeah, the Runway yeah, is on there right now, or was on there last week too. Yeah, it's it's un- sadly it's yeah. faced off. Yeah, uh, the Allbirds one is really really good, so I'd recommend folks watch that one. And then I, I just saw that Nerd Wallet uh, hit, and I'm kind of interested to see how they talk about that one. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, that has been uh, entertaining TV. I watch those uh, videos on my on my Peloton now. <laughs> nice. Yeah, uh, when I'm not listening to Amazon earning calls. <laughs> well, Scott, uh, it has happened again. We've perfectly used up all our allotted time, but hopefully people found some value in this recap. And if you did, as always, we sure would appreciate it if you jump on the iTunes and give us that five-star review. Yeah, thanks everybody, and until next time, happy commercing.